HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Learn more about PASA's 2021 virtual conference at pasafarming.org conference. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S. They're using this romance and fantasy to say dates are exotic and you should consume them. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts, in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market. It's not like other foods. We have very like, personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Bob Valgenti, standing in for Coral Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our new issue, 21.1, features articles on food and power, on care work, and on chefs, restaurants, and culinary creativity. Gastronomica also continues to publish its COVID dispatches, short portraits of early responses to the food crises of this pandemic. For six weeks, Join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with authors. My guests this week are Dr. Brian Dale and Dr. Joita Sharma. Brian Dale is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto Scarborough's Culinary Research Centre. His research focuses on the potential expansion of food sovereignty and agroecology as a means to fight climate change. His PhD was in human geography from the University of Toronto. He is project manager for Feeding Our City, Pandemic and Beyond. Joe Sharma is associate professor of history and food studies at the University of Toronto. Her research examines food, mobilities, labor, family and gender, and sustainable social ecologies across imperial and post-colonial spaces. She is project lead for Feeding Our City, Pandemic and Beyond. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, thank you, Bob and Brian. Brian, could you start us off 
by telling us the name of your project and uh, what its aims and goals are. Sure. Um, so the project is called Feeding the City Pandemic and Beyond, and uh, it's its goal is essentially to respond to uh, the COVID's, COVID-19's effect on the food system in the Toronto area, but but beyond as well. And uh, we most immediately were wanting to respond to things that we saw popping up in the, the, the people that we saw being affected by uh, food system disruptions uh, because of the pandemic. And so we kind of are covering, uh, in essence, five main areas of, uh, of our analysis, which include uh, urban growing, uh, so urban agriculture and, and other uh, forms of uh, uh, growing at different scales. Uh, produce supply chains, so uh, the food flows uh, coming in and out of Toronto and the GTA and, and beyond. Uh, agriculture and uh, farmer-to-consumer connections in terms of more uh, rural agriculture, but especially ecological growers. And uh, school food was an immediate one that we uh, were looking at in terms of uh, uh, the fact that schools were closed down and, and a lot of school food programs that were kind of uh, ad hoc were suddenly unavailable to, to children and youth. Um, and then also food security more broadly. Um, so yeah, those are the, the main areas and, uh, and our, our goals are largely about um, uh, identifying uh, some of the trends and responses to the pandemic in terms of those disruptions in, in those areas. So why don't we jump into this project, the scope of which is rather uh, quite large and amazing as I was reading over the, the research brief. Um, can we start with um, maybe just discussing what the primary driver is behind the study and its focus? Well, one driver was the pandemic and the immense disruption in the life of our university. But the second driver, I would be say, I would say, was to see the newspaper headlines announcing in Toronto the closing down of farmer farmers markets and community gardens. And this just dismayed us because for many of us who had been doing community-driven research about the importance to food systems of such local initiatives, it just seemed that, oh, these were frills to be discarded when the going got tough. And this was also a big contrast for, for instance, with a city like New York, where the green markets were declared an essential service and kept open. Toronto did open sites like farmers markets later, but... They continued to put in all kinds of confusing obstacles. Um, and that is where I decided to respond to the Toronto COVID-19 in, uh, initiative, the call for action plans. Uh, ours was a social policy action plan, and we were funded to go forward with the project. And that's where Brian came in. Yeah, and I can say uh, for my part, uh, personally, as you mentioned, Bob, I mean, I was, uh, I'd finished my PhD uh, sort of in late 2018 and was looking at uh, agroecological farming and food sovereignty as uh, means to uh, fight climate change and generate a more uh, ecological, but also a socially just uh, food system. And uh, as I was, you know, uh, you know, proceeding from my PhD and then looking at postdoc work, I'd, I'd talked to, to Joe in the months uh, before the pandemic came about and 
uh, of course, uh, the, the pandemic, um, you know, caused all of us to, to, to pause, to say the least, but uh, for a lot of us to focus on food systems. And so um, my initial plan with my postdoc was going to focus largely on specific things around distribution, uh, alternative forms of distribution in terms of uh, food systems, and looking at some examples in the Ontario context, especially. And so um, in a sense, I was, uh, you know, uh, lucky to, you know, have uh, with Joe receiving this grant and me kind of jumping in as a project manager to be able to uh, quite focus focus quite a bit on what was going on in terms of uh, COVID because I would be interested in uh, seeing seeing what was going on and obviously there was a lot of um, uh, disturbing things happening in terms of uh, rising food insecurity and and additional stresses for a, a number of people throughout the food system. Uh, but, uh, but it was a chance to kind of carry on some of that focus in terms of farmers experiences specifically. So yeah, yeah those were some of the, the drivers of things that, uh, led, led Joe and I in particular to, to jump into this. Yeah. So there's this broad living and ongoing context into which, uh, your project steps, um, regardless of what's happened over the past year with COVID. So when we talk about food systems and we talk about the places where those food systems do and oftentimes, unfortunately, don't provide for those who are part of them, um, you know, it's not only incredibly rich and in, in complex, but it's, but it's, it's, I would say, almost daunting in terms in this, of the scope and the scale. So I was wondering if you could say just a little bit more about some of the unique opportunities that are created by uh, the situation of COVID. Um, what has allowed for maybe the type of research that uh, you couldn't have done otherwise? Uh, Joe? Well, uh, my, the scope of my research is tends normally to be on a more global scale. And in fact, that's one of the th- opportunities that you know has been suspended because i had just started a project working with sustainable agro uh, agri food chains and um, ecological producers in uh, india and that <laughs> has not been possible to do now but when i shifted lens to canada where i had done a little bit of work with uh, spe- specifically with migrant and community uh, food security initiatives earlier what i could see in my own personal life around me the neighborhood but also in terms of the media in terms of what was happening was really the scope for increased visibility and actions on local foods and on sustainable provisioning ethical decisions about consumption collective actions on food security. And this is where we also felt that with our project, we could be contributing a little bit to a real opportunity for state and non-state actors to come together on food system change. Mm-hmm. And, and if I can just add, I think that um, there are opportunities that come with this intense scrutiny of what's going on in the food system that, that goes beyond people that are normally paying attention to it. Um, I think that the scope of our project, which is um, which seems kind of overwhelming in itself, uh, uh, reflects in some ways the complexity and the vastness uh, of the food system and all of the issues that are uh, relational. And I think that people have been, in some ways, uh, drawing some of those connections in ways that they didn't before the pandemic. So that's in a in a way a good thing that uh, while maybe there could be more. Um, 
media attention and broader attention on specific issues, at least in some cases, in many cases, in the, in, in the Ontario context especially, people have been uh, noticing uh, because of media reporting and so on about the plight of, say, migrant workers in agriculture, uh, of increasing food insecurity, um, and and even just in terms of the the supply chain itself, right? Uh, uh, food people not taking food supply uh, for granted. Um, and to, just one quick example in terms of uh, the farmers that I've uh, connected with, uh, many smaller scale ecological farmers have uh, been operating community supported agriculture or CSA programs, and they've just seen they just saw uh, in late March and, and into April and beginning of May the interest in their, those programs those CSA programs explode and so uh, in some ways that was those were opportunities for a lot of those uh, small scale farmers but it was also stressful to try to respond and and meet that demand uh, as quickly as they they could um, so yeah I think those are those are some of the things that uh, th- that are opportunities that are coming about. Yeah, so in those opportunities and in the the vast complexity of the system and, of course, the project that you've put together here, uh, could you say a little bit about how many individuals or entities are involved in the research, both on your team and perhaps also out in the field? Uh, Well, it's a hard question to answer. (laughs) It's a hard question to answer because right at the start, we were able to bring Brian on board. I'm sure Brian would have been on board informally if I hadn't got the funding. But as it happened, we were he was also chosen at that time to be the culinary or postdoctoral fellow for the year. And I had already uh, brought on board two of my previous community research uh, collaborators who worked on urban gardens and uh, school foods respectively. Uh, a long-time research collaborator of mine who's a professor at Ryerson University, and we hired, about, I think, about uh, four or five students at first go. And then as we moved on, now I think if I kind of roughly jot down the numbers, it's maybe 25 in all, and we have not just one, but two postdoctoral research associates who are co-leading the project. Brian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Uh... I was looking at uh, looking back at our website in terms of uh, kind of our, on our about page. We have our project collaborators listed, and uh, we have we have people who are named there who are both uh, inside U of T and and outside U of T, including uh, people who are collaborators uh, involved with uh, more community based organizations as opposed to academic ones. Um, but even what we've listed there doesn't capture everyone that we're uh, kind of working with and communicating with. So there's also informal collaborators, which, which is why <laughs> our question isn't an exact, uh, exact one, but, uh, that, that all those collaborations and, and all the work that, uh, the many student research assistants, uh, we have working with us, that's all coming together to contribute to, um, the richness, I think, in terms of the data that we're gathering and the analysis that we're, we've been able to do so far and that we're going to continue doing in the next uh, yeah. several months. Yeah, so, so a question I have in, in relation to all of those uh, different actors is, you know, once again, uh, dealing with the scope of this project, um, how did you uh, or how do you in this ongoing project find a, a place to get a toehold? You know, we're talking about a food system in a major metropolitan area, um, 
like so where do you decide or how do you decide what is the what is the group what is the practice what is the specific uh, point of focus where you can train your critical eye because it seems like it's uh, there would be so many things within that system so many points of contact where you could begin I don't know uh, maybe uh, Brian do you want to uh, maybe start off uh, maybe shedding some light on that yeah yeah sure um I mean, I think that in many ways we started with existing uh, relationships that we had um, in terms of doing community-focused uh, research. I mean, relationships are tremendously important. Uh, and so for me, I was in many ways uh, relying on some of the connections that I'd built through doing my PhD research. And, I, and through that, I was kind of taking a, a scholar-activist uh, type approach or an activist-scholar, uh, rather, t- type of approach to um, doing, you know, all kinds of work uh, beyond kind of academic analysis and research uh, with uh, the National Farmers Union, the NFU, uh, which is a pan-Canadian group of uh, farmers that um, isn't uh, entirely, but but uh, often uh, quite focused on uh, ecological farming, but also generally about, uh, you know, food sovereignty struggles and so on. Um, so, you know, we with uh, some of the Joe mentioned some of the you know particular uh, topics that were really at the forefront at the beginning of the pandemic in terms of markets, urban agriculture, and so on. And so and Joe also had relationships with uh, people who came on board to help us uh, kind of deepen that analysis. And so we we included um, as many of those kinds of relationships and um, you know points of connection that we could, and then also acknowledging that you know some relationships that we didn't have established, uh, say, as one example, looking at indigenous food issues um, in the Toronto area and in Ontario, um, it wasn't something that um, we would be able to tackle right away. Great. Joe, could you add maybe a little bit about uh, how you identified some of the the various actors involved in your research? Yeah, I think the first, uh, you know, set of collaborations were really out of the relationships um, both I personally and also institutionally the Culinaria uh, Research Center had. But then going on, I think what developed was that, especially in the second phase of the project, which I would you know, kind of say has been from late summer onwards, especially with uh, the coming on board of our other research associate, uh, Jackie Rohel. And she and I had actually worked together many years ago with uh, racialized community caterers, with uh, local restaurants and community organizations in the city. And so that became another plank, you know, we're calling that food and community uh, uh, support systems. And that came came to be a plank that's very much at the fore now. And we recruited a whole set of RAs with specific emphasis on language skills, for instance, people who could talk in you know, languages, uh, say a number of South Asian languages who are familiar with cultural contexts. And that is where I think now we really have actors who are contributing and helping us document otherwise fairly hidden parts of the food system, especially relating to uh, racialized and uh, prior communities and high priority neighborhoods. So can you maybe comment a little bit on the connection between those actors, uh, food supply chains and food insecurity rates? Um, uh, 
You know, is food insecurity in many cases a supply chain issue or is it rooted in, in other issues? And how are you going to get at that question? It's, it's a good question. I mean, um, I would say that many people, uh, especially after the you know, initial days of kind of some panic buying and things like that uh, uh, happened in the first uh, several weeks of the pandemic, many people would suggest that uh, the supply chain issue has generally been resolved, that we, what we've seen in the pandemic is that um, we have supply chains that are fairly intact and, and resilient. Um, and I think that that overlooks what's going on uh, beyond the experiences of middle class and, and upper class people in society. Um, you know, we have, we have you know, increasing food insecurity um, that has been an issue and was an issue well before the pandemic. We had almost uh, 12% food insecurity rates across Canada, which is quite astonishing for, for a country as wealthy as this one. Um, and uh, some studies from the early months uh, of the pandemic were demonstrating that uh, that those food insecurity rates had gone up, say, about 5%, um, which which is incredible, right? I mean, those, uh, and that's that's just gone, you know, it's gone from there. Um, even upwards, um, and so the there are some some serious concerns about some of those longstanding issues, and then also the the fact that um, the supply chain actually is largely serving the interests of uh, you know corporate corporate retailers, right? I mean, uh, farmers aren't really benefiting <laughs> from this corporate uh, retail system that uh, uh, is relying on these kind of long supply chains. Um, and, uh, you know, generally people see this uh, seeming abundance in grocery stores in, say, Toronto. But um, what is hidden from that is that if there was a real shutdown of our borders, um, depending on the season, you know, we could quickly run out of food in about three days. Uh, and so that constant flow of, of food from sometimes quite uh, distant places um, is important for, for food security much, much, much more broadly than um, it's important for food secu security across the board. And so even though, uh, you know, largely that would seem to be quite intact, uh, it's kind of glossing over if we focus on uh, uh, only certain experiences, we're glossing over the, the underlying uh, issues and the relative lack of uh, resiliency. Uh, if some if some kind of disruption like this happens again, or if something worse happens again. Hmm. Uh, Joe, did you want to add to that? Yeah, and I think, um you know, some of it goes beyond the scope of our present study, but does raise, uh, you know, segue into policy recommendations. So an issue, for instance, that uh, a lot of other people are also uh, studying is that of food waste. And so, for instance, one of the <laughs> uh, issues, as we all know, is that so much food gets thrown out, <laughs> whether it's from restaurants or supermarkets or farmers have you know, food that they're not able to dispose of, especially with the disruption in, say, restaurant ordering and so on. And, uh, you know, that is where policy and state actions come in, that you have tax breaks and incentives to providers and uh, producers to actually uh, actively help with food insecurity by getting what, what becomes food waste to food security organizations in a systematic way, not just when there's a crisis. And there are individual methods of doing so. But, you know, one thing we would advocate that this needs to be added to the larger issue of policy uh, 
of policy regarding food, regarding the environment, and that would be ways in which the supply chain and food insecurity is very closely connected. Thank you. Well, at this point, let's take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture, cultivating environmentally sound, economically viable, and community-focused farms and food systems. PASA Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference is one of the largest gatherings of sustainable farmers, food system professionals, and changemakers in the nation. The 2021 virtual conference takes place January 19th to February 5th and features more than 90 sessions on topics that include soil health, climate change, crop production, livestock grazing, urban agriculture, community building, food justice, and much, much more. Don't miss keynote speaker Robin Wall Kimmerer, scientist and author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Learn more about PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2021 virtual conference and register online at pasafarming.org conference. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten. I'm Bob Valgenti, speaking with Brian Dale and Joe Sharma about their ongoing research, Feeding Our City, Pandemic and Beyond, available in the current issue of Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. So let's pick up where we left off. The methodology you employ in this study, which draws upon a great number of techniques, is overwhelmingly qualitative in nature, even though it seems like so many of the details that could be part of our food systems would be better measured quantitatively. And this seems to reflect the theoretical principles supporting this project. So why is the qualitative research important in this context? And what can it document that would otherwise elude the grasp of more quantitative studies. Uh, Joe? Yeah, so we have um, we have uh, people, our student researchers, ourselves, our collaborators, who are connecting in a very personal as well as academic way with what is actually happening on the ground. And I think that is where the qualitative methods and the approach is really important because while it's crucial to have statistical data, that personal stories can really be lost. And while we have had a lot of challenges, you know, for instance, that um, there are certain groups who are just really, really hard to contact through socially distanced and remote means, but we feel that capturing the human nuances and also the diversities within the impact of COVID on food systems and food system actors is absolutely crucial. And that is what our project aims to do, is doing, and is also sharing as we go through our public facing webinars. Yeah, and I think, um, 
if I can just add about, you know, the qualitative uh, approach in terms of documenting stories, and that's that's looking at a number of different things, uh, looking like a number of different things in terms of how we're doing the research. The stories uh, really add kind of an emotional uh, aspect that you don't get through numbers. And, you know, I was quoting statistics around food insecurity, and those are important. I think that those, they need to go hand in hand, the, the qualitative and, and quantitative analysis. Um, what I would say we need to remember is that, uh, you know, people, uh, the general public, but also, you know, politicians and decision makers and uh, academics and so on, we really relate to, uh, to stories, to emotions. Um, and that, and that comes through when you're, when you're talking to people, right? I mean, um, just the other day I was interviewing a farmer and, uh, they were talking about just how uh, difficult this has been and how concerned they are for other farmers that they know um, uh, in terms of mental health. And that's been an ongoing issue uh, and because it's such a struggle for farmers of all uh, stripes to be, uh, you know, looking after their livelihood. And the pandemic has just piled on so many additional concerns. Farmer suicides are, are a concern. Um, and this person actually lost uh, a friend um, in recent months, uh, who died by suicide and, uh, who was a farmer. And so, you know, these, these kinds of, uh, stories, like they, uh, are, uh, are, are rich and troubling and they, uh, are, are ones that are, that I think it's really important to document because, uh, that can, that, that can get lost in, in qualitative analysis and quantitative analysis. Sorry. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just think that, um, you know, in terms of the types of things we've been looking at, I mentioned interviews, but also, you know, we've had been gathering really rich data with uh, most recently with doing some auto ethnographic uh, look research, looking at our own research teams, you know, food provisioning practices and so on. Uh, and we have such a uh, ethnically and uh, culturally diverse group uh, in terms of the people who are participating in this project, you know, that's an interesting way to be to be gathering those stories. We're also looking at uh, social media and media analysis generally um, and picking up, I think, from, from quite a broad uh, uh, base of, of data that's coming in uh, and trying to just just capture that a lot of that richness and a lot of the, the things that are are. Um, not going to be captured in just numbers. I mean, just to, as if we think about COVID numbers generally and the number of deaths, I, I, I know speaking personally, it's hard not to be numb when you hear uh, about the number of deaths when it's, you know, every death that, due to COVID is is tragic. And yet we just keep seeing uh, numbers, you know, case counts and, uh, and and the numbers of deaths rolling in daily. So um, so we need to, to go beyond that. Yeah, and it's a powerful connection too, because in your work, it seems that, uh, the data point, the data points in terms of qualitative data, also then become an important part of the outreach for the project as well, because it is through those stories that things uh, get translated uh, and made um, impactful for people. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about about your methodology. Research studies are often designed and implemented through the use of a control group and an experimental group. Conducting research as a response to changing conditions really does not allow for that kind of design and raises the question of how applicable your study might be outside of this crisis. So how are you weighing your results in light of any norms from before the pandemic or outside of the specific context you're working in? And would it be correct to say that the project uh, will be more successful uh, 
if we understand that a crisis like COVID is not an exceptional situation, but rather one that should be viewed as a difference of degree that stresses the resilience of our current systems. I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, a running theme before we started the study and as we go through it, and you know, I don't think any of us look back, if we look back at last March that we could contemplate yet another year of, <laughs> you know, this pandemic going on. Our food systems were already in bad shape. The pandemic just highlighted those stress areas into, you know, brought them into sight of people who might not have otherwise thought about them. And it's really important, and this is where one of those opportunities comes in, that it has engaged public attention to such a degree that we, especially through this kind of public-facing research project where we are doing the back-end research, but we are making sure through our blog, through our events every month to get the information out there, to get those direct stories and experiences out there so that post-pandemic, we can keep that type of engagement going so that it doesn't become, oh, well, pandemic over, now we can go back to the so-called normal because the so-called normal was already very, very fraught. Yeah. Uh, and if I can jump in, I think um, Naomi Klein has kind of popularized this uh, idea of uh, elites taking advantage of crisis, right? The, the shock doctrine approach. Um, and, and she spoke quite a bit about this um, at the beginning of the pandemic, especially. And um, the, the need to kind of counter that, uh, you know, to counter that kind of um, further entrenchment of, in this case, like a corporate food system um, and, and the elites say like furthering uh, ideas that had been lying around that now seem feasible because there's this crisis, right? You can take advantage of people's uh, feeling of vul vulnerability. Um, you know, we need to counter that with uh, an emphasis on the fact that, yes, this, this is, you know, this current crisis is one in a long uh, string of crises, uh, the climate crisis just being one of them. Uh, and that this is going to, you know, this kind of thing is going to likely continue on if we don't uh, change the way that we're doing things in terms of how we're organizing the food system. Um, there's been a number of people that have documented how uh, agriculture itself, especially uh, industrial style uh, monocultural approaches to agriculture and the deforestation that that brings uh, the encroachment into uh, what are relatively wild spaces that were largely untouched have uh, really created this whole string of, uh, you know, quite virulent uh, diseases and viruses like SARS and Ebola and H1N1. Um, you know, these, this in many ways, although this is an extreme case, COVID is not an exception. Um, and, you know, who knows if the climate crisis may provide us with an even uh, more disruptive, uh, you know, uh, uh, disruptions, uh, more disruptive kind of uh, interruption of our food system as normal, especially around supply chains and so on. I mean, that that kind of crisis is happening due to climate change all over the world already, uh, not just for for farmers and others directly involved in, in agriculture, but people uh, in, in food systems uh, experiencing, you know, food systems from the consumer side and so on around the world. Um, so, so yeah, I think that um, you know, with with our with our research and with our methods, we've we definitely have tried to emphasize that um, you know, in many ways, the control uh, was 
you know, what was going on before the pandemic and that we don't want to be returning to normal because the the problems that we're seeing have only been exacerbated and highlighted due to the pandemic, not uh, not created for uh, not created anew. Yeah. So, I mean, despite oftentimes our most careful preparations uh, in the methodologies or in your training, there are unexpected things that happen. And oftentimes those things can be uh, rather good for research. Uh, so despite all of the, uh, you know, the sort of tragic aspects of working within this time of pandemic, uh, can you uh, maybe share with us some of the more significant discoveries uh, or even actions within the project that have occurred since uh, you first wrote this all down for Gastronomica back in the fall of 2020? Well, <laughs> I don't know that one would call it a discovery, but one of the things is that, you know, we are not just academics and researchers. We're also human beings who have to eat and shop. <laughs> <laughs> and so, in fact, I will say that several of our research subjects have emerged out of, you know, our own actions in those regards and those autoethnographies we mentioned. So, for instance, we have just started interviews with some really interesting non-mainstream <laughs> racialized you know kind of food providers who are bringing together previously you know kind of scattered home cooks in community kitchens and who are therefore you know just providing a livelihood to people who may have lost their jobs are turning to this kind of initiative but are also providing much needed diversity in terms of options all kinds of things and so i would say that even since we wrote the uh, project brief where we did articulate you know, our determination to make sure that our findings reflected the diversity and the silences that we were very aware of affected this city and its food systems, you know, like more spaces. But yes, we have <laughs> had these little kind of moments where, where there are incredibly creative, important initiatives taking part, which do not get documented otherwise. And we are, in fact, you know, documenting them, but we also trying to kind of give them more visibility. And one means is through our webinars and our blog. Mm. Yeah. And and we've been pretty busy uh, since we since we wrote this uh, this piece for Gastro Gastronomico. Um, I would say, if I can just add one point, that um, personally I've been busy uh, working on. Uh, I'll call it a report, but it's actually uh, part fiction and part nonfiction. Uh, and this came about due to having some conversations with uh, some researchers within the National Farmers Union, the NFU, which I mentioned earlier. And uh, I have been working closely with a few of our research assistants who are doing an incredible job. And we are, uh, uh, based on kind of this inspiration from talking to these, uh, these, these researchers within the NFU, um, what we've been trying to do is, which kind of goes back to the last question is is talk about um, the you know the visions of a, of a food system that we would like to see or the visions of the food system to come and what we're doing is uh, in this um, part fictional piece is projecting ourselves to say 2070 and looking at the food system and what it would look like with all these relational things that tie into the agricultural system and the food system um, and and saying you know basically uh, working our way backwards in terms of how we got to that food system we want to see um, with the with the pandemic kind of being a, an inspiration for you know a disruption that leads to things getting better um, and I, I feel like that's been 
very meaningful to work on because it, I mean, it's, it's challenging, but it's also um, kind of a hopeful exercise. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, to, to wrapping that up. And it's also one that, um, you know, is going to be one where we uh, seek feedback from people. So we will be uh, going to people we know and also inviting general comments once it's ready um, uh, in terms of people's uh, feedback on it. Great. So maybe as we, we get towards the end of our, of our time here, could you, uh, could you add a little bit more about, so if people want to know uh, more about your project or particularly if they're in the Toronto area and they want to in some way either be involved or just track what you're doing, what is the best place or best resource uh, for them to find out that information? Well, on our uh, website, feedingcity.org, which is shortly to move actually to a University of Toronto website, but there'll be automatic direction. So it's not just people who live in the greater Toronto area, but because we have a global section of our blog, and in fact, uh, we've had blog posts dealing with New York, with Singapore. So we would really invite contributions from members of the public to contribute uh, global aspects of feeding their cities. And uh, we invite listeners to contact us, but also to listen in, register and listen to our forthcoming events, even to go back to the recordings of our webinars, which are there. Um, so we ha- the next one is on February 24th on BIPOC-headed food security responses to the pandemic. Yeah, I'll just mention too that we're we're also on social media um, at Feeding City, uh, so you can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And yeah, essentially, as Joe said, everything is um, available through our website, feedingcity.org. Uh, people can also check out our YouTube page from there where uh, we're putting up the recordings from our webinars. So if, if people missed it but are interested in the first few that we've done, uh, they're, all, they're all available on YouTube. And so and I think you can just go to YouTube and search Feeding, feeding uh, the City um, to find our channel. Great. Thank you for that information. And thank you, Brian and Joe for joining us today. Listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, volume 21.1, available in February of 2021. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week when Gastronomica Collective member Jackie Rohel speaks with Alicia Galvez about humanizing a dehumanized food system. to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.